This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The sinner is told his debts are paid, and yet he often struggles to believe this. For this proclamation is made a free pardon to all that believe, that they will not perish, but have everlasting life. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're going to go back to the 17th century to listen to a sermon that was delivered in London by Benjamin Keach. Keach like peach is how I remember to pronounce his name. How you doing, Troy? <laughs> I'm doing very well. We are at, I don't know if our listeners, I always remind it because we're always getting new listeners. Uh, I am in Indonesia and we are at the peak of the dry season turning into a rainy season. If you've never experienced mm. that fun feeling, if you're like most, a lot like I was having grown up in America uh, and you're used to spring, fall, summer kind of thing deal, the the in between like those couple weeks leading up to the switch of season are so humid and so hot you can just mm. feel like you're just begging for the rains to come because you just yeah. want it to stop being this cloying humidity all the time that's where i'm at right now so i'm really excited for when the rain starts. sounds awful sounds yep. awful i will <laughs> say here in the midwest we've had a nice cool front it's very fall feeling uh. it's lovely I will say we made pumpkin spice out of pumpkins the other day just just to have a little bit of fall here, just just to feel like we were doing it. It tasted I great, thought, by the way. I thought I, w- I was fairly certain. That was one of my fun facts, that pumpkin spice doesn't actually have pumpkin in it. Like, it's just like a series of spices. It is. You know, it is. That, that they call pumpkin spice because, it, it, you know, it feels yeah, out of me. But you can make pumpkin spice with pumpkin. So even though like okay. the pumpkin spice you're getting at probably like Starbucks is not made from pumpkin, uh, when we we made we made it out of pumpkin. So we actually went and found recipes with pumpkin, and so you can make a syrup from pumpkin spice. And and I tell you what, that's what people clicked on Benjamin Keach to hear. <laughs> They're here to hear about my pumpkin spice recipe. Um, you know, old Baptists and pumpkin spice they go yeah. hand in hand. There. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure some of our listeners are are enjoying a good pumpkin spice. Don't act like you're too good for it, guys. Uh, you never know when you'll end up in a country where they don't have it, and then you're going to miss it. All right, Joel, let's talk about some great reviews we've had. We always try to read a couple of reviews that have come in and some people just shouting us out, and you guys have been overwhelmingly kind. I actually went to one of our... Um, one of the ways we track our track our reviews and not to get overly technical about podcast stuff, that's not maybe super interesting to everybody, but we have 212 verified reviews, which is super awesome. And we still have a 5.0. This is crazy. 
Absolutely crazy. I promise you. I've been in podcasting. We've been doing this for four and a half years. We used to run a podcast a long time ago. I have never seen a show keep a 5.0. Even I love my my sweet wife's show, Mars Missionaries. Amazing show. Does not have the 5.0 that Revive Thoughts has. On all these reviews, it's insane that we've kept that. We're really grateful to all of you who've left us a five-star review, over 212 of you. Um, thank you so much, and we really appreciate how much you guys have shown love to our show. We really, it's just... I, I've never seen anything like it, so thank you. A couple other reviews, though, that came in on Twitter. A person whose name is Caillou Buck, but I don't think that's their name from their birth certificate, said, Revive Thoughts, this is my current favorite. Christian faith history from the people and sermons of the past. Troy and Joe always include a bio of the person highlighted. Highly recommend. Uh, they were answering somebody saying, what should I listen to as a podcast? Thank you for the shout out. Uh, on YouTube, someone named Matches Magic G, again, on our recent episode about William Bacon Stevens said, this is one of the top ones you all have ever done. Thank you. Uh, on a comment on Facebook on our recent David Guzik interview, uh, L- Lauren Bickford said, good interview. Thank you, Larry, as I know him. And also Gina H. said of the same episode, she said, I use the commentary often by David Guzik. I do too. I've had so many people go, I can't believe uh, you're, you had David Guzik on his commentary. I use it all the time. He was really nice. Uh, very smart, intelligent man if you listen to the interview. And uh, it was really honorable. It was just an honor to have him on. So we're glad that you guys enjoyed that episode as much as we did as well. All right, Benjamin Keach. We have actually talked about him and his church before. If you listen to our London Fire episode, I actually did a little snippet on Benjamin Keach. Uh, He's come up here and there, but we've never actually done an episode on him. And so let's get into this really important guy uh, from church history that lived about 400 years ago. Yeah, Benjamin Keach, born in the year 1640. Uh, during a volatile time in English history, a lot of revolutions were happening. So an odd, awkward time for a child to be born and raised and developed as a teenager going through an era where your country is a little bit unstable here. We've talked about kind of this era on lots of different episodes of Revive Thoughts. But again, it's something that's hard for us to relate with being, you know, raised in such a, a time of peace in global history here. It's, we really take it for granted. A lot of people didn't have that luxury. He was raised in an Anglican household, but uh, when he was 15, he went his own way and joined what were called the General Baptists at the time. Part of the reason uh, that, that convinced him, that moved him in this direction, was the debate over in infant baptism, which was all the rage during this time. This is, you know, post-Great Reformation, and you have like kind of this hundred-year time where people are debating about what Reformed, or, you know, post-Reformation churches look like, and one of those debates was infant baptism, and lots of churches came down on both sides of that argument. Uh, The Baptistic view, obviously, is one of uh, adult baptism, right? You know, that Anabaptist name, rebaptize. And, you know, Anabaptists were around before the Reformation, but uh, post-Reformation, you see a lot more groups solidifying into um, that being one of the defining characteristics of those movements. And so uh, the General Baptist movement was one that Benjamin Keach found himself aligning with because he says he couldn't find any evidence for infant baptism in scriptures. His church loved him and and found him to be very talented. And at 18, they encouraged him to start preaching. 
when he was 28, a church in London would call him to be the pastor there because its pastor seemed to have passed away from the Black Plague. Keach uh, went ahead and accepted it and became a new pastor at the age of 28. By the way, I cannot verify with 100% certainty that he died of the Black Plague. I just know that he died in the year 1665 uh, suddenly, and it seemed to be of illness at the same time that London was being racked with the Black Plague. And in some districts of London, over half the population died of Black Plague. So it seems to reason that it was, and he was a younger guy. So it seems to reason he probably died of the Black Plague. Pro- but prob- I mean, I, probably. He could he could have been hit by a horse, but as far as I can tell, uh, all history's data seems to point that he died of the Black Plague. Uh, if you want to know more about the Black Plague, you should go click London Fire episode 1666, uh, guys. You got to be, I know that I uh, I point you to that episode a lot, but that's because some of you still haven't listened and you're lacking this important knowledge about London and the Black Plague. <laughs> all right. This seems like the classic story of the prodigy pastor. I mean, Joel, how many times have we said, and he did really well and he was really good at preaching. He was a young man. Everyone likes him. But there's a twist to this episode. But then tragedy struck. There you go. There's actually kind of two twists. I feel like that's how they usually go. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of two twists to this story. And the first one is he's not exactly the prodigy story of the guy who just keeps rising and rising. Because during this time, England is not open to his style of Christianity at all. When I teach church history and when I talk to people, people kind of always have this in the back of their head. Europe and England was like always Christian since the Roman Empire. And that's just not true. There were many eras where Christianity was really barely hanging on in Europe. And in England at this time, this Baptist type of Christianity that's you know so common to us now was outlawed and Keach had run-ins with the law. Specifically in 1664, he was 24 years old and he had written a book that got him into a lot of trouble. This book, this this dangerous uh, book that he wrote was called The Child's Instructor and it led to him being arrested. This book was basically a grammar book teaching basic components of vocabulary, phonetics, um, just like kind of something you hope that school teachers would read Yet, it also had a Baptist perspective. So he would use the verses that they used more, and he would not necessarily, you know, say he wouldn't say anything bad about the Anglican Church, but he wasn't like, you know, putting the vocabulary word bishop in there because he didn't see the need. This book got him in a ton of trouble, even though, again, it's today you wouldn't even pick up the book. It would be so boring. Back then, this was like, whoa, what are you doing? They looked and looked through the, bur- the book to find out, like, what could we nail him for in this book? And the line that got him in trouble was, it, it, quoting a verse from Revelation, he said, devils will be raised again after a thousand years. And they said, aha, it shouldn't say devils, it should say the dead. Now, I don't know that Keech was making an eschatological point or not. That was it. That one word of switching the word devils to dead got him guilty of basically being considered a heretic. Now, the judge of the case seemed to be personally after him. Um, He was very harsh. He would yell at him in the court in front of the jury, calling him all these evil things. The judge is supporting the Anglican Church. This guy is supporting the Baptist movement. And even at one point, the lawyers kind of said, like, he asked him a series of questions, hoping to get him to either perjure himself or to admit some kind of heresy so that he could, if he admitted what he if he had if he had followed the judge's train of thought and not been careful he would have been executable for basically calling out the anglican church what keach was smart he knew how to answer the questions in a way that didn't indict himself but that's what this judge was basically trying to do this little switch up of the word um here in revelation ends up causing uh, Benjamin Keach to be convicted for writing, printing, and publishing a seditious, schismatic book 
for which the court's judgment is that, I'm sorry, I'm going to actually quote it here. He says, you are convicted for writing, printing, and publishing a seditious and schismatical book for which the court's judgment is that you go to jail for two weeks without bail, and the next Saturday you will stand at a pillory in Aylesbury in the open market for the space of two hours with a paper upon your head with the inscription that says, for writing, printing, and publishing a schismatic book entitled The Child's Instructor or an easy primer, end quote. So again, all of this because he wrote a children's vocabulary book, basically, um, and he didn't write it the way that they wanted him to. That is, I mean, that's pretty high levels of persecution. It shows you just how narrow that tightrope was for the Baptists at that time and how angry they were with him. Mm-hmm. And especially because, I mean, all they it seems like wanted to get out of it was humiliating him. It, like it was a personal vendetta. It wasn't, it didn't have to do with any, I don't know, fair judicial cause and punishment. It was, how can we make this guy look like a fool type of thing is, is what it seems like. So it very much uh, seems like it would, was, if we can yeah. make an example out of him, like if we shame right. him, this will keep other people from following him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, went to jail, paid a 20 pound fine, which, uh, you know, and counted for inflation if we did our math correctly, which we probably didn't. But that that appears to be forty thousand dollars in today's uh, United States dollar, which is uh, hefty. That is a hefty fine to pay. Yeah. Um, and then put in this pillory, which is uh like an old stock. You know, like those old medieval movies where you got your head and arms clamped into that wood brace out in the public. So people can throw rotten tomatoes at you and such. Uh, it's a real thing. And that's what he was assigned to be in uh, while he was undergoing his punishment. And they wanted him to be mocked by the public. They wanted uh, him to yeah, have those rotten tomatoes thrown on his face and things like that. But uh, again, he was well liked by much of the public. And Keach from the stocks, you know, would explain his sentencing he would argue it from scripture what his reasoning was and uh seemed to be pretty persuasive on the public to the point where they, they didn't really i mean they they almost it took a shift where they ended up cheering him on and, and coming to his side there was a town over where an an, Ang- an anglican bishop uh was uh putting keach degrading him you know throwing saying some mean things about putting him under the rug and the town actually kind of rallied to keach's defense there and started airing out that that anglican bishop's laundry you know kind of saying where do you come being able to point out his sins like where what about your sin aren't you a drunkard like you know you know saying that he has no right to uh to insult keach um due to things in his own life so although the sheriff and the judge had meant to harm him in this uh, situation uh, Keach, he after his time walked away, walked away relatively unscathed. This is Troy here. I wanted to tell you about a podcast that I think you will really enjoy. Recently, a man named Paul reached out to our show. He said that he's a big fan of what Revive Thoughts is doing, and asked if we could check out his show, Compelled, the Compelled podcast. I have been enjoying it and think it's a show that you would enjoy as well. Compelled uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. One of my favorite stories is an episode they put out a couple years ago about Virginia Prodan. Virginia was a small petite attorney in communist Romania during the 1980s, defending Christians in court. Her success, though, angered the Romanian dictator, and he vowed that she would have to pay. One evening, Virginia was alone at her office when a man entered the room, closed the door, and pulled out a gun. 
He told her to shut up, sit down. I'm here to kill you. She was face to face with a trained assassin. What happened next? Well, there's only one way to find out, but I guarantee it will blow your mind. Listen to Virginia to tell her entire story on episode 31 of the Compelled Podcast, which is titled, He Came to Kill Me. There are so many other great stories ranging from missionaries, addicts, prisoners, or regular people sharing how Jesus Christ transformed their life. Search for Compelled on your favorite podcast app, or you can go to the link that we will have below. Again, that's compelledpodcast.com. Because of all this, Keach was a big defender and helper of the Baptist movement. He would often meet with and discuss with other Baptists in secret meetings to explore how they could kind of get the message out. Uh, some people today accuse Keach of being a bit argumentative and contentious. He wrote a lot of books basically answering attacks um, and going after people. And he just, that was kind of one of his big things. He was always writing a response or writing an answer to things. But I found this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's not an exact quote, but I'm just kind of giving you the idea here. Uh, who was writing this in the 19th century. And he said, we take it for granted that Baptists today are safe. You know, everyone looks at Baptists as one of the denominations of Christianity. But he's, he said in the 17th century, they were a relatively scorned and small group. They had to fight back to kind of keep from being annihilated. Uh, you see the levels of persecution that Keech alone is going through. And if you remember, we did an episode uh, not super long ago about some of the stuff that was going on in uh, the New World as well in the not yet fully formed Americas. So this is kind of a thing that was happening at the time. The fact that there are so many Baptists uh, today, you know, in the 1800s, when Spurgeon is saying this is because these early founders were tenacious against error and fought back against all this kind of stuff. Specifically, one person Keach famously went after was Richard Baxter. Uh, Keach kind of accused Baxter of being a guy who pushes workspace salvation. And we've, we enjoy Richard Baxter. We've had him on our show, Revived Devos. We did episodes on him for Revived Thoughts, but Keach made some really good points. And I, this specifically going after Richard Baxter, who was a really well-loved guy, but pointing out some of the flaws was kind of what got Keach's name really on the map of the theological world where people were like, hey, this guy's got, got some really good stuff to say. Yeah, so 30 years, uh, Keech was persecuted for, and people tried to get him to, to rise up, you know, to, to yoke him on, to, to become a part of the uh, the fight, but he, he really seemed to not want to encourage any uh, strife, any, any fighting going on. He would kind of stick to writing his defenses of theology, working hard with his own congregants and his own local pastors. Um, that's what he spent most of his time doing during those eras of persecution. Once the persecution was over, he did help write what is called Keech's Catechism, which some people might be familiar with. It's a particular uh, Baptist confession, a, a kind of a version of the 1689 confession. So very uh, fundamental and instrumental for a lot of belief structures that were developing during this time. He also, and I found this really interesting, Troy, is credited with introducing singing to Baptist churches. Now, you know, like songs and worship and singing uh, has an interesting journey over the years throughout church history. And you might think that singing was always a part of church, but not the case. Uh, Baptists in this era did not sing. And Keech really pushed for that. He, he wanted to, to bring hymns into uh, the churches. And uh, you might think that that would be fine, but it was actually wildly controversial. Uh, it, it's hard to think singing hymns might be controversial in today's day and age, but it was so much so that uh, it ended up actually causing a split in his church in 1673. So uh, let no one tell you that hymns are boring anymore because they, they can be <laughs> quite intense. 
it's really weird to me to th- imagine church without singing. Like, could you, I, I, and I don't, I don't think I'd want to go to this church, you know, necessarily. Um, but I'm just trying to even yeah. picture like our church services around the world. I've, I've worshipped at many locations. I'm not, it's pretty much, you know, the same. You almost always start with music, then you have a sermon. You may have music at the end. It's not uncommon. Not every church, but most churches, you have maybe some songs mm-hmm. at the end. It's so weird to even picture that there was a time where many churches were meeting and there was not singing. I, I. It's just, it's beyond what you're used to or even imagining. Uh, two more thoughts to leave with you. First starters, I said there was kind of two twists with Keach. Here's the second one. I was reading some of the overviews and a gentleman named Alan Walker basically published a book uh, call, and basically said Keach was your average minister. Uh, he was a very normal guy. Like when you think of great people in history, you think of a Whitfield or a Spurgeon, they were great speakers who could control an audience. Or you have like these geniuses, like maybe Jonathan Edwards or Augustine, or just great thinkers, right? But uh, the the gentleman named Walker made the case that, look, Keach was pretty average. Like he wasn't thought of as like the most amazing wild speaker. His writings weren't thought of as like theology, Pacific Ocean deep levels here. Like he was good. It was average. It was, we're very grateful for him. Um, but he was an average pastor who lived through immensely hard times. And that's what makes him stand out to history so much. This, and he said, this is, should be encouraging because many of us, you know, want to maybe be the next big thing, want to be that celebrity, but we're not going to be, and we don't have to be. You can just be an average pastor who perseveres. You know, Keith stayed in the same church for almost 40 years. That just makes a huge impact. And that, I actually would say that does make him extraordinary to go against this guy. I don't actually agree that he's an average pastor. His perseverance under constant persecution, under constant agitation, but staying faithful, keeping ideas on how to grow, keeping writing, just keeping at it no matter what. I do think that makes him an above average out there person. It's just that what he's great at wasn't speaking or maybe writing necessarily. It was patience and perseverance. His gifting was just holding on and not letting go. And I think that's something that can encourage us because you know what? I think a lot of us struggle in different areas, but we can be people who hold on and just don't let go to what God is doing. And it paid off. In the end of his life, he actually, those many persecutions stopped. In the last 15 years that he got to preach at his church, there were no laws against him doing so. He got to do it in peace. The church he founded, by the way, we haven't mentioned it. It's a very important church that's a church history. Uh, a couple of years after uh, Benjamin Keach is there, a man named John Gill, who we've gone over. We have episodes by him. He's really important to Baptist history, wrote a bunch of early Baptist theology. Uh, a little bit after him, a man named John Rippon, which we should do an episode on. And then after him, one of the, mo- the most famous Baptist ministers of all time, especially in England's history, Charles Spurgeon presided all over this same church that Benjamin Keach Keach took over. Uh, Benjamin Keach took it over during a time of persecution, took it over probably because the pastor before him died of black plague, went to the city anyway, uh, doesn't let go, keeps doing the work, keeps holding on through it all. And his church goes on because of his perseverance, because of his amazing uh, faithfulness goes on to change the world. the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my favor will not be removed from you, nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54.10 You see that there is a covenant of peace that stands firm on the behalf of all God's elect. So what is contained in this proclamation? First, 
Know that it contains a full declaration of all those covenant transactions between the Father and the Son over the restoration of lost sinners before the world began. The gospel reveals those mysteries that were hidden for ages and generations. Not only that mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the inheritance, but the mystery of the covenant, purpose, and design of God. The gospel is also the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of Jesus Christ. I say it contains a revealing of the mystery of these things, and not just a written history of them. We see how it reveals the infinite love, mercy, grace, and goodness of God to lost and undone sinners. This love which astonished the very angels of God to behold, to make all men see this mysterious fellowship from which the beginning of the world has been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, this mysterious fellowship that now the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be, meet, might be known by the church. This was the expressed wisdom of God. The good angels are not teachers of these mysteries, but learners and admirers of them. The gospel is for, for them a microscope or looking glass to behold and contemplate the divine wisdom of God whenever it appears. Secondly, it reveals the great love of God the Father. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son that we might live through him, that he might die to raise us to life, to be crowned with thorns, that we might be crowned with glory, to be made a curse for us, that we might be made the blessing of God in him. Oh, can there be any higher demonstration of God's love than this? It also reveals the love of Christ, which has a width, a length, a depth, and a height to it, and it surpasses knowledge. Isn't it an amazing declaration of the infinite love of Jesus Christ our Lord, who even though he was God, should lower himself to die for such vile rebels and wretched sinners such as we? In this, we can perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We also see this proclamation is a declaration that God in Christ is reconciled to his elect. That is, the price is paid, though the blood may not be yet sprinkled on all who believe. When we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Through the blood of his cross, God is satisfied and his wrath is appeased and that atonement is made perfect forever. By one sacrifice, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. We also see it doesn't just declare, but also proclaims this peace and reconciliation. Deliverance is proclaimed to the captives. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the prison to them that are chained, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the year of the great jubilee. The sinner is told his debts are paid, and yet he often struggles to believe this. For this proclamation is made a free pardon to all that believe that they will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that God has received even the very last penny of our last of our vast debt, and that he has not done what he did in part, or by a fraction of it, but that it is fully, wholly, and completely done, and done forever. Our faith adds nothing to the deal. The gospel does not proclaim a conditional peace or reconciliation, or that God is only merely interested in the idea of reconciliation, as if he is waiting for the sinner to perform his part, and then God will be fully reconciled. That is, if the sinner repents, believes on his own, and regenerates himself, as some have said. I do not know of any such conditional gospel or proclamation. But those conditions which Jesus Christ was to perform, which is not only to reconcile God to us, but also us to God. For now God has promised to give us a new heart and to put a new spirit into us. In addition to that, Christ is exalted to be a prince and a savior to give repentance to Israel and remission of sins. My brothers notice that the salvation by Christ preceded our faith and both were to be performed for us by his pledge. And let us also see that this proclamation is a universal proclamation. 
peace and good tidings are to be preached or proclaimed to all the world. Go you therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What is this gospel? Why, it is peace by Jesus Christ. Or to say that God is reconciled, his justice satisfied, and his wrath appeased by the sacrifice and obedience of his Son. Why that God in Christ, through his death, was reconciled to us when we were ungodly. Not that God will be reconciled and appeased if we repent, believe, are regenerated and baptized. That which remains to be done, which he will also begin and perform for all the elect, is the sinner believing at what Jesus Christ has done. It is to receive the atonement or to stretch out the hand of faith, to receive the pardon procured by Christ's blood. Not that any sinner can believe it on his own until the Spirit infuses grace into him. The seed must be sown before the fruit can appear. Christ gives a sinner grace that he might be reconciled to God as God in him is reconciled. And all things are of God who has reconciled us for himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 19. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did ask you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. God, by the blood of his Son, was reconciled to us. By the Spirit, his blood is actually applied and made effective to our reconciliation to God. We pray that you will be reconciled. That is, we pray that you receive the atonement Christ has made, or believe the record God has given of his Son. Believe there is life in him, that God is satisfied in him and reconciled in him. If this, my brothers, is not the nature of the gospel, or of this blessed proclamation, I profess I do not know what it is. Now, to the next point. For that peace is universally to be proclaimed to all nations or in all parts of the world, wherever God, by his providence, is pleased to send the gospel. Not just wherever it would go, but whoever God would will, the gospel meet as well. For in respect to all sorts of sins and sinners, pardon is proclaimed completely to all kinds of sins, and free forgiveness and peace in Christ is offered to all manners of sinners, rebels and traitors to God. Whatever they are, not one sin is exempt, except for the sin against the Holy Spirit. In some proclamations or acts of mercy, many crimes are exempted, such as murder, high treason, felonies, and crimes like that. But it's not so here. For whoever they are, even if they were horrid blasphemers, haters of God, traitors to him, and rebels against him, if they come in and accept the peace and lay hold of the king's grace, humbly believing in Jesus Christ, or throwing themselves at his feet, all their treasons, murders, felonies, blasphemy, adultery, drunkenness, swearing, idolatry, heresy, sodomy, incest, foolishness, covetousness, lying, thieving, backbiting, cheating, backsliding, or whatever else they've done, it'll all be forgiven, forgotten, and passed by forever. As I told you before, yes, even if you had done all the evil things you could, you have spoken and done evil things as much as you could, even if this people had committed adultery, idolatry, and had rejected the true God and worshipped idols, and dealt most treacherously with the God of heaven and earth. Even still, we see what the Lord says, go, and proclaim these words towards the north, and say, Return, you backsliding Israel, says the Lord. That is, believe, plead your pardon in, and by the blood of my Son, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, says the Lord, and I will not stay angry forever. To experience God without Christ is a consuming fire, but in him a reconciled God. You only have to acknowledge your sin. What proclamation can be ma- can be more free or universal than this? Now, you may make the objection, if Christ is to be offered to all, or peace proclaimed for all, doesn't that mean there is a universal redemption purchased by him? The first answer I would give to this objection is this. Redemption is a word that denotes persons who were in slavery or bondage for whom a price is paid. 
then they are set free. Suppose ten men were slaves in Algeria, and a thousand pounds was paid down to redeem them all, but only four were actually freed. Is it true to say all the ten were redeemed? So here, is it true to say that the redemption by Christ is universal, when the greater part of the world was never redeemed, but remains under the power of sin and Satan? That redemption, which is by Jesus Christ, is from sin, from the guilt, power, and punishment of it. And are all men in the world redeemed in this way? It is not a redemption only from the curse of the law and wrath of God, but also from all sin. For he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all sin and purify for himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. Do we see all people living redeemed in this condition, free from sin? Continuing on in the thought, I would say, if Christ laid down his life to redeem every man and woman in the world, did he get his whole purchase? A man would think himself cheated or strangely deceived that laid down a thousand pounds to redeem ten men. When he finds out, there were only three or four indeed set free. This renders Christ's blood spilt in vain for the great, greatest part for whom it was shed or whom he intended to redeem, and, is, and so he's deceived or disappointed. So there can be no universal redemption unless Christ were a universal redeemer, but Christ is not a universal redeemer, for millions of souls are still left under the power of sin and dominion of Satan. Now, would a man lay down 10,000 pounds to purchase an estate and yet refuse to part with 10 pounds to move up to that estate to take it for himself? Brothers, the gift of Christ for us, his laying down his life is the far greater gift. So will he do this and not give the gospel to to many nations nor faith to believe and receive him if he already died for all of them? Would Jesus Christ die for the whole world and yet refuse to pray for them that they may all be saved? Look at John seventeen nine. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The reprobate world he did not pray for, yet he prayed for all that should be saved. Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also which will believe in me through their words. The second objection someone might say is, we do not plead for an absolute universal redemption, but for a conditional one. That is, so that if all repent, act in faith, are then regenerated, obey Christ, and are holy and continue so to the end, then they will be saved. My answer to them is this. Is this the gospel? Does the proclamation of peace sound like this? If you say that it is dependent on our works, then I argue that Christ is only a conditional redeemer and has only made a conditional peace. For he made our peace and paid our debts upon this condition that we repent, change our own hearts, or are regenerated and get faith and sincere obedience and continue holy and obedient to the end. Moreover, this notion of a conditional peace and redemption renders our salvation not to be of God's free grace alone through that redemption that is in Jesus Christ, but that we create our own peace and make it with God ourselves. We purchased our freedom with our own money through our repentance, faith, holiness, and final perseverance. And that Christ only worked or purchased this grant that our money, i.e. our faith, obedience, etc., should go for good coin in heaven. That our good works would then be able to equal our justification, peace, and eternal life for us. And so the glory that we are saved would not belong to God and Jesus Christ alone. True that we might be saved, we may thank God and Christ. God, by the death of his Son, is made reconcilable. But for our salvation, we may thank ourselves for that. Christ doing no more for us in the situation when we are saved than he did for those that perished. The difference between us and the damned is that we had more wit and care than they had. For by improving our common grace, God is obliged to give us his special grace. Keeping along these lines of thinking Christ might be or might not be a redeemer at all, our peace might or might not be made with God because it wholly depends upon the will of man. Man's will determines the issue of the whole matter, not that Christ undertook to change our wills or reconcile us to God. No, but that we ourselves must answer the condition of repentance, faith, 
obedience, or else all that Christ has done is lost and comes to nothing. And it is certainly possible all might refuse to do this instead of just some, so that none ever chooses to believe. Then Christ would have redeemed no one. Christ will be a redeemer and make our peace if we please. This puts an obstacle to the purchaser, as one observes. A man can't in any good sense be called a redeemer of such persons out of slavery till the persons perform these conditions upon which he laid down the price. For example, if I were to lay down a hundred pounds for the redemption of a person's slavery upon this condition, that he first agrees to serve me seven years after, then I must have his consent before I can redeem him. And therefore, upon these conditions, I'm certainly no longer considered a redeemer, and I would be even less of a redeemer of such persons if they refuse my terms. So for Christ to be an universal redeemer, it's a contradiction. For it is to be a redeemer of all, if only they please, but can be a redeemer of none unless they have consented to the terms proposed. According to this idea we've been talking about, Jesus only deceives poor creatures. For he has made their peace and redeemed them, if they will but get out of Satan's hands first and break his chains and bonds and pieces, and raise themselves from the dead and change their own hearts. But in reality, he knew we were no more able to do this than to create a new world for ourselves. Therefore, brothers, I pray you see this. We affirm that whatever conditions were agreed upon in the covenant of peace, our Lord Jesus Christ undertook to do and perform them all himself, both for us and also in us. I will give them a new heart and I will take away the stony heart. I will give them a heart of flesh and I will put my fear into their hearts and they will not depart from me. I will circumcise their hearts to the, to love the Lord their God. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Christ. For you were born not of flesh and not of blood, not of the will of man, but of God. To believe is our duty, but it is Christ that gives us grace and power to do this. And this grace was also purchased for us by his blood. He is exalted at God's right hand to be a prince and a savior. And faith also is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 For who can believe that Christ who shed, would shed his blood for those whom he knew would never answer the conditions which these men speak of? For they were conditions impossible in their power to perform. For I might argue it this way. If Christ died for all, he intended to save all. But since he never intended to save all, therefore he did not die for all? Who will frustrate his purpose or intention? For Christ's death and resurrection will have its full and proper effects for whom or in whose stead he died. Okay, then the objection changes to, if this is true, why is the proclamation so universal? My first answer is because no sort of sins, nor sinners by name, are accepted or exempted. For who can say he was not included in this covenant of peace to whom the gospel comes? For ministers do not know if every single person to whom they preach may have a part in this covenant or in the election of grace. Because if any sort of sinners were exempt from the proclamation, unless God should tell them to us by name, then there might be multitudes who would fall into utter despair if they thought they were exempt. The proclamation does not go out to us in any way more complicated than this. He that believes, he that comes to Christ, and he that believes the record God has given of his son, and he receives the atonement, he believes the testimony of the gospel, then he will be saved. This brings me to the next thing. What are the terms upon which peace is offered and proclaimed? The terms on which peace is proclaimed are as follows that whoever it is that believes will be saved. This proclamation runs to him that thirsts. Oh, everyone that thirsts can come to the waters. Jesus stood up and cried, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This thirsting may refer to thirsting after happiness and desiring to be saved. Yet others think it is a thirst found deep in the soul by the Spirit. From the sight and sense of the excellencies that sinners see in Christ and the need of him, they desire and thirst after him. Faith is the fruit of the Spirit, therefore the seed must be first sown in our hearts. 
The terms of the proclamation are to look to Christ, look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. This is all one with believing. The Israelites that were stung with fiery serpents had to look to the bronze serpent. So Christ is lifted up that whoever looks to him or that believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is made to all of them that come to Christ. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no way cast out. The proclamation runs to everyone that hears, but it is to those that hear Christ's voice saying, Hear and your souls will will live. It is also to everyone who will take the water of life freely. Whoever God has inclined their will or made willing to accept of peace by Jesus Christ. If any soul believes in Christ, thirsts for Christ, looks to Christ, or comes to Christ, and yet Christ rejects him, then we may be able to charge Christ with injustice. But where will we find the man that was so vile and ungodly yet he went to Christ but found no mercy? Oh, do you see now how free and universal the proclamation is? Someone may object and say, it's not so free, for unbelief has put an obstacle in the way of believing it. The answer I would give is that a sinful state is not is no obstacle to the power of God. For just because someone does, do not, some do not believe in the gospel, will their unbelief make the faith of God no effect to those who do? God forbid. You may object again and say, but men must be humbled first, before they come and they must renounce their idols before they are ready to come to God. The answer is only grace humbles. They will look to me whom they pierced and will mourn. But God first pours upon them the spirit of grace before they can look and, or mourn. Zechariah 12.10 All previous works before grace has entered the life of the believer are an abomination to God, because the state of the soul is in such rebellion when it has not been touched by grace, and all such things that do not come from faith God detests. It is but working for your life and not from his life. Let us move past the objections and speak to some application. From here we may infer that in the covenant of peace the promises of God are absolute, and that this absoluteness implies that all the conditions that are required on the creature's part, grace is promised to them to perform them on God's part. For he will certainly finish what he started, for he works in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. We must also apply that this proclamation is not so universal, but that it wholly depends upon God's sovereign pleasure, who will reap the benefit of it. It is sent to one nation and then not to another. God is not obliged to send it equally to all nations and kingdoms, nor to all that live in the nation, even if he pleased to send it. But if Christ died for all, I mean in the place of all. This does not change the fact that he is calling people from different nations to faith in him. And we cannot know which ones God God's harvest will be found in. But how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So the proclamation offers free pardon of all sins, both past, present, and to come, to all that believe in Jesus Christ, and therefore a final deliverance from the curse of the law and the wrath of God. And free justification by Christ alone is also offered with the supply of all grace to the end, to all them that are in Jesus Christ. if <clears throat> It proclaims God to be our Father, and we his sons and daughters, upon receiving Jesus Christ. For where any elect sinners are, or dwell, there the proclamation will and must go, to bring them all into the bonds of the covenant. And also whoever receives this welcome news will be saved from hell, and be crowned with glory in heaven forever and ever. O oh, bless God for the gospel, for the news of peace, and you sinners, see that you are you attend upon preaching of the word of reconciliation, for this way he has ordained to work faith in you. Cry to him to pour out his spirit and help you to believe. Never rest until you have got a heart and a will to take the water of life. Tremble if you reject these tidings, this grace, for any who will do so. For you will never have a share of that peace Christ has made by his blood. For on such the wrath of God rests, and it will fall on you forever. 
for he also will make it clear that man's destruction is on themselves, even though their help is only in him. Be in dread of this and be afraid that God gives you up to blindness of mind and hardness of heart. Then he will leave you also to temporal plagues and judgments as he dealt with the hard-hearted Israelites of old. But be of comfort, believers, for here is comfort to believers who have heard and do know the joyful sound of his call. They have interest in this peace and have a title to heaven by Christ's righteousness alone. And this proclamation is also a sign they were beloved from everlasting, for they were drawn to Christ and were elected before time. Therefore, let all such people praise the holy God, to whom be glory now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Todd Nicholas, a husband, a father who lives in the Philadelphia area and works in research and loves spending time with his family, reading and listening to Revive Studios podcasts on his commute, and loves watching the GOAT Leo Messi still defeat teams easily at 36. I can't believe he's only 36. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember in high school, he was uh, playing for the soccer team. I, Joel and I, I had to ask Joel well, just seconds ago, who is the GOAT Leo Messi? I had no idea I, who it was. So I remember I remember Leo <laughs> playing when I was in high school, and that was, that was 13, 14 years ago. So the fact that he's still playing, he, I guess that also just means he was playing very young and very I famous say, very young. That's wild. We let people, we ask people when they read a sermon for us. We love everyone who reads a sermon for us. If you'd like to read a sermon for us, you should send us an email and tell us you want to be on the show, right? But we let them write their own bios. And, you know, sometimes they say things like the goat Leo Messi. In my mind, I picture a goat, obviously, a little guy Hmm. named Named Leo. Leo. Uh, But no, he's a sports guy. He does the sporting. So um, he he kicks the ball with his feet. He does. As if the listener is surprised to find out that their favorite church history podcaster isn't super up to date with athletics. Um, anyway, that actually is how we're going to end. The, we're going to end it right there on that. If you'd like to read a sermon for us, you listen to people, you go, man, um, I like to be on this show that's listened to by thousands of people. Uh, can I get a sermon from you? I'd love to. I'd love to help bring one of these voices back to life. If you would like to do that, please send us an email at revivethoughts at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter or somewhere else where you're at. And, uh, we will we will start getting you hooked up on that process. We can always use new speakers. We have wonderful speakers who've helped out. Many of them have done more than one episode, but people are always have, getting busy, not able to help us out as much, and we can always use some new speakers to kind of come in and help uh, replace those that are going. So if you would like to do that, we would be really, really grateful. Every sermon, we're, we're four and a half years into this thing, every sermon has been read by a volunteer. We've had people sometimes reach out and go, who are these people? Where do you get them from? How much do you pay them? And we go, the Lord brings them. They're volunteers. They're people who have just spent time being, uh, you know, enjoying these sermons, being convicted by them, being challenged by them, being encouraged by them. And they want to help us continue doing that. And so we were really grateful for each person who's done that. And we would love to have more of you jump in. Uh, it's always easier when there's a longer list of speakers active. So. Yeah, and we can uh, provide, like, if you don't have a sermon in mind, we have lists of sermons that we can give you. Don't don't feel like you have to come to the table with a sermon. We can provide yeah. sermons. If you if you just want to read, um, uh, tell us what you're interested in, and we can, we can find a sermon for you to read for sure. Yep. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.